G'day, Annie McLaughlin here for this week's edition of Stick Together, the only national program focusing on union news, workers' stories and social justice issues. This program is produced in Melbourne for 3CR on the stolen lands of the Kulin Nation and we pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Stick Together is broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network with the support of the Community Radio Foundation. In today's program, we're going to have a look at the use of AI in artificial intelligence with particular focus on social security systems. The pervasive narrative is that AI systems create a value-neutral process that removes the vagaries of human bias. However, when we hear of the use of computer analysts of workers' performance at Amazon centres as a means of removing the onus of firing workers for underperformance from human supervisors, we begin to see that there is more to this scenario. Today we are going to hear from Virginia Eubanks from the University of Albany in America as she talks about her book Automating Inequality, How High-Tech Tools Profile Police and Punish the Poor. It has particular interest in Australia because of the federal government's love affair with similar systems as it pushes to automate our social security system. The power of AI, which is seen as the next industrial revolution in developed nations, requires that we recognise that the common narrative of AI as value neutral is a myth. I'm thrilled to be here. I'm so grateful um, to the Australian Unemployed Workers Union for um, making this happen. And I'm really, really grateful to you for being here to hear about um, our experience in the United States. Um, I think we have a lot to talk about that's um, common. um, And so I'm really excited to get to the panel. But I do want to spend a little time giving you guys some context of how this stuff works in the US. And I want to tell you a couple of stories of individuals that and families who I worked with when I was reporting um, this book. I did more than 105 interviews over seven years uh, for this book. And in each case, each technology I talk about, I talk to lots of different kinds of people. So developers of the tools, policymakers, frontline caseworkers. But in each story, I started with folks who are most directly affected by the tools. Um, folks who are looking for public assistance, who are involved in the child welfare system, who are unhoused or homeless. And it's too rare that we hear the voices of people who are actually directly affected, particularly when we talk about these new technologies. And so I just want to make sure that I introduce you to these stories through the stories of people who are directly impacted. So I'll spend some time sort of introducing you to folks as I, I talk about the big ideas for the book. So uh, I'm here uh, to talk about uh, what I describe in the book as a digital poorhouse, which is a sort of invisible institution that's made up of decision-making algorithms, automated eligibility processes, and statistical models, particularly predictive models, in the U.S. social service programs. I want to talk today about how the rise of this invisible institution um, is sort of sunk in the, into the policy history of the United States um, and how it responds and recreates specifically a narrative of austerity. This idea, this false idea, that there's not enough for everyone and that we have to make hard decisions about who deserves to access their basic human needs and who does not. 
So we often talk about the kinds of tools that I write about in the book as disruptors, um, but they're really more evolution than revolution. And their roots go very, very deep in US history, um, and specifically to a moment um, in the early 1800s um, where we decided to sort of invent a new technology for managing poverty, um, which was in the US context, the county poorhouse. And sort of this is the moment that I always thank my editor, um, Elizabeth Disagard, because originally this book started with a 95-page history chapter that went back to 1601. Um, and she pretty much cried and was like, oh, God, please don't do that to people. Um, and so it's now sort of down to a svelte little 26-page um, history that starts, oh, you know, only in 1819. Um, but I think it's really important that we contextualize these tools that get talked about as if they sort of appeared from nowhere, like the monolith in 2001, A Space Odyssey. Um, but they, their, their roots are really deep in our uh, respective histories. So I'm just going to talk about one of these historical moments briefly which is in 1819, we had a really horrible um, economic depression in the United States, one that was accompanied by a lot of organizing by poor and working class people uh, for their rights and their survival. And this, of course, made economic elites really, really nervous. Um, they did what economic elites always do when they get really nervous, and they commissioned a whole bunch of studies. Um, and so the studies, yeah, that, that line never gets a laugh in academic talks, by the way. Just, <laughs> Um, I, it was really fun to do that line at, um, at Harvard, though. Um, I was like, I like, wait, let me say that again. Um, so uh, they, and they frame the question in a very specific way. So they frame the question behind all these uh, studies. What's the real problem during this catastrophic economic recession? Is it poverty? Is it lack of access to resources? Or is it what they called at the time pauperism, which was dependence on public benefits? So how do you think the surveys, the studies came back? Was it actual poverty or was it pauper, pauperism? Yes, they, you're very smart people. Um, this is exactly what the studies came back and said. The problem is when we're too generous, allowing people not to starve through this economic depression, they become dependent on public benefits, they lose their work ethic, they have a bunch of babies and get drunk. So, um, yeah, again, does it sounds familiar. Um, and uh, so they invented this new technology um, at the time, or a technology, honestly, that was um, imported from uh, England, uh, which was our version of the workhouse. Uh, it's called the County Poorhouse. And this was basically a brick-and-mortar institution for um, more or less incarcerating people who asked for support from public funds. So they were strictly voluntary in the sense that homeless shelters are strictly voluntary, although you could be sentenced to the poorhouse for crimes like vagrancy, having nowhere to live, begging, asking for help, or prostitution, which at the time meant having sex while not being married. Um, so you could get sentenced to the poorhouse, but for folks who volu voluntarily entered, um, they, it was not an easy decision. So uh, it was 1819, so not everybody had these rights. But if you had the right to vote and hold office, you had to give it up in order to enter the poorhouse. You couldn't marry when you were in the poorhouse. You were often separated from your children because it was understood that poor and working class children could be redeemed um, by having more contact with richer families. And by contact, they generally meant 
uh, labor uh, as domestic or agricultural workers. Um, and some of these institutions, one of the most notorious being Tewksbury in Massachusetts, had death rates as high as 30% a year. So um, a third, basically a third of people entering died um, every year. So the reason that I use this as sort of the origin story I tell about the digital poorhouse is because it's a moment that the United States made two really important decisions. The first was that the, the first and most important thing our social service system could do is a kind of moral diagnosis, deciding who deserves help and who doesn't, who's deserving and who is undeserving, rather than, say, building a system that created a universal floor under everyone. And the second um, thing we decided at that moment was that it was acceptable and appropriate to ask people to give up one of their basic human rights for another, right? So their right to their children or their right to vote for their right to things like food and shelter. And this is what I think of as sort of the deep social programming that underlies the new tools that we're seeing in social services. Um, it, for the sort of techies in the, in the room, that would be the legacy program programming on which the rest of the tool is built. Um, so I, I, I'd like to start with history because it has a tendency to contextualize the tools I talk about in the book, but I also want us to think a little bit together today about this political moment, about um, sort of why these specific tools have become popular at this precise time. Um, and I think there's three reasons for that, and I'll introduce you to the technologies through these three stories. Um, the first is these new tools rationalize and recreate a politics of austerity, the idea that there's not enough for everyone. Second, they um, purport to address bias in these systems, but in fact they often hide or displace the bias to a new place. Um, and third, at their worst, they create a kind of empathy override that allows us to ease the emotional burden of making what I think are inhumanly difficult decisions. Decisions like who gets access to emergency shelter and who is forced to live um, on the street in a tent or in a car. You're on Stick Together, workers' stories, union news and social justice issues. We're listening to Virginia Eubanks who gave a talk at the Victorian Trades Hall put on by the Unemployed Workers' Union around her book, Automating Inequality, How High-Tech Tools Profile, Police and Punish the Poor. I dedicate this book to um, a little girl named Sophie Stipes, a severely disabled little girl who, um, when she was six, received a letter from the state of Indiana that explained that she would be losing her Medicaid, which is the um, health care insurance program for poor and working families in the United States because she had failed to cooperate in establishing eligibility for the program. So this was happening just as she was gaining weight, really on par with normal um, patterns for the first time in her life. She had just had a gastrointestinal feeding tube um, uh, implanted and she was learning to walk for the first time. Um, so her family was caught up in an attempt by the state of Indiana to um, uh, automate and modernize um, and privatize all of the eligibility functions for the state's welfare program. So that's Medicaid, that uh, health insurance program I was talking about, cash assistance, with, which in the U.S. is called TANF, and food stamps, uh, a program's now called SNAP, but at the time was called food stamps. So in 2006, 
Um, the governor of the state at the time, Mitch Daniels, signed what was eventually a $1.34 billion, with a B, billion dollar contract with a consortium of companies, including IBM and Affiliated Computer Services, or ACS, now owned by Xerox, to create a system that basically replaced the work of local county caseworkers with online forms and regional call centers, which might sound familiar based on your announcement today. Um, and what that looked like from a caseworker's point of view was in the past, they had been responsible for a docket of families or a caseload, um, which were individuals and families that they often developed relationships with over time and helped them navigate the really difficult, complex, and punitive social service system. Instead, they were now moved to regionalized call centers, often hundreds of miles away from where they lived, um, and responded rather than um, to a docket of families to a sort of a list of tasks that dropped into their electronic workflow management system. So for caseworkers, this felt very much like um, they were not able to develop relationships with people over time because every call just went to the next available worker. Um, it felt like their local knowledge was no longer useful. So they could say like, well, it looks like you're not gonna be eligible for food stamps, but they couldn't then say, but there's a food pantry in your town, it's open Tuesday nights. So they felt like it really changed the nature of their job. From applicants' point of view, it felt like if anything went wrong in this process, because it was so difficult to talk to the same person more than once, that basically all the responsibility for finding out what had gone wrong and fixing it fell on families themselves, which are some of the most vulnerable families in the state. Um, and the result was a million benefits denials in the first three years of the experiment. It was a 54% increase from the three years before the experiment. And almost all of them were denied for this catch-all reason that was in Sophie Stipes' letter, failure to cooperate in establishing eligibility. Basically, all that meant is that a mistake was made somewhere in the application. Could be uh, the applicant forgot to sign page 18 in a 34-page application. Could be that this, the new regional call center workers didn't know the policy so well, so folks uh, got bad advice. Could be a technical problem. For example, the, um, the document um, processing center, the sort of scanning center, um, lost so many documents that advocates started calling it the black hole in Marion. Um, so if any one of your documents went missing somewhere in the process, that was also seen as failure to cooperate in establishing eligibility. And it was really up to families to figure out what had gone wrong. Um, so this created enormous hardship for families. Um, and I just want to read you briefly a story of one of those people, Omega Young from Evansville, Indiana. So in the fall of 2008, Omega Young missed an appointment to recertify for Medicaid because she was in the hospital suffering from terminal cancer. The cancer that began in her ovaries had spread to her kidneys, breast, and liver. Her chemotherapy left her weak and emaciated. Young, a round-faced, umber-skinned mother of two grown sons, struggled to meet the new system's requirements. So she called her local county help center to let them know she was hospitalized and that's why she couldn't make her um, phone-based recertification appointment. But her medical benefits and food stamps were still cut off for failure to cooperate in establishing eligibility. Because she lost her benefits, she was unable to afford her medication, she struggled to pay her rent, she lost access to free transportation to medical appointments. 
And Omega Young died on March 1st, 2009. On the next day, on March 2nd, she won an appeal for wrongful termination and all of her benefits were restored. So that's Indiana. So um, the second story I wanna tell today, let's start uh, with the point of view of families because we need a little lift after that and this is a funny and wonderful family. But um, the second tool I wanna talk about today is a tool called the Allegheny Family Screening Tool, the AFST. Um, and the Allegheny Family Screening Tool is a um, statistical model that's supposed to be able to predict which children might be victims of abuse or neglect in the future in Allegheny County, which is the county where Pittsburgh is in Pennsylvania. Um, so let me introduce you to a family. I wanna introduce you to Angel um, and Patrick, um, Angel Shepard and Patrick Grieb. So I met them at a, a community support center for families who are involved in the child welfare system. Um, so I met them at this sort of community hub where families gather to like share resources, connect with each other, do peer support, that kind of stuff. Um, and Angel and Patrick didn't stand out right away because their experience really was so average. Um, it was so characteristic of what I see as the routine mundane indignities that are suffered by the white working class in the United States. So they've struggled with low wage, dangerous work, poor quality public schools and predatory online education, poor health and community violence. Um, but through it all, they've been creative, involved parents. So I describe Patrick in the book as kind of a Buddhist ex-biker, right? So he's this enormous rectangle, like refrigerator-sized man um, who has like really elaborate facial hair and he's really calm. He's like deeply calm. Um, and Angel and Patrick are caring for two young girls or helping to care for two young girls, Angel's daughter, Harriet, and Patrick's daughter's daughter, Desiree. And the two girls are roughly the same age, so they bicker a lot, they fight a lot. So Angel and Patrick's solution for this is what they call the get-along shirt. And the get-along shirt is one of Patrick's like enormous button-down shirts. And they take both girls and they put them in the shirt, um, one arm through one armhole, one arm in the waist of the other girl, and they button the shirt back up. Um, and you're not allowed to leave the get-along shirt until you stop fighting even if you have to go to the bathroom. Um, and this is the thing that Patrick said always works. As soon as someone has to pee, the fighting stops because no one wants to pee in the get-along shirt. Um, so despite this, um, Angel and Patrick have racked up sort of a lifetime of interactions with the child welfare system in Allegheny County, which is called Children, Youth, and Family Services, or CYF. So Patrick was investigated for medical neglect in the early 2000s. Um, because he was unable to afford his daughter Tabitha's um, uh, antibiotic prescription after a visit to the emergency room. So he brought her to the emergency room because she was sick. They prescribed antibiotics. He couldn't afford to fill the prescription. She got worse. He brought her back. The nurse said, oh, we saw you before. We know you didn't fill the prescription. And they reported them for child neglect, um, for medical neglect. Um, when Harriet, Angel's daughter, was five, someone phoned a string of reports to the county's child abuse and neglect hotline. So it's possible to be anonymous on these hotlines. So this sort of anonymous tipster explained that Harriet was running around the neighborhood unsupervised, that she was down the block teasing a dog, that she wasn't being properly clothed, fed, or bathed, that she wasn't getting needed medication. So for each call, an investigator from CYF came out to the house 
interviewed Harriet and Tabitha, Angel and Patrick, looked in all their cupboards and under all their beds, um, and requested access to the family's medical records. And then each time they found no evidence of maltreatment, so they closed the case. But the record of these cases uh, is now kept in digital form um, and maintained on an integrated data um, warehouse that was built by the county in 1999, which feeds the Allegheny family screening tool. So, and I'll talk about the, how that system works in a sec. So Patrick and Angel described to me like that they felt like they did sort of a constant algebra of terror, where they were trying to figure out what resource, what requesting which resources would drive their score up and make it more likely that they'd be investigated for child maltreatment, which would make it more likely that one of their kids would be taken out of their home and put into foster care. Um, so Angel told, um, told me, um, this is a quote, you feel like a prisoner, you feel trapped. It's like no matter what you do, it's not good enough for them. My daughter's now nine, and I'm still afraid that they're gonna come up one day, see her out by herself, pick her up and say, you can't have her anymore. So the system in Allegheny County um, sort of began in 1999 when the county built this integrated data warehouse that gets um, regular data extracts from about 30 different agencies around the county and around the state. So as of the writing of the book, um, that integrated data warehouse held about a billion records, uh, which was more than 800 for every individual living in Allegheny County. But it doesn't actually collect data equally on everyone li living in the county. In fact, the way that public services works in the US, it really only collects information about poor and working families. So um, for example, if you're struggling with um, an addiction or recovery issue and you're a professional middle-class family, you would go to your family doctor. That would be, they might refer you to addiction recovery. That would be covered by employer-provided private insurance. And that information would not go into this, data, this database. <laughs> if you're a poor and working class family, you'd rely on county services for that, those recovery services. And that data would go into the database. Um, if you uh, are a professional middle class family and you need uh, just some like uh, respite in your parenting, you might get a nanny or pay for a babysitter and you'll pay out of pocket. If you are a poor and working class person and you need daycare when you go to work, you're going to get that from a county-based uh, daycare provider um, and that information will go into the database. So the parents that I spoke to about the system said that it felt like it confused parenting while poor with poor parenting, and that it created what they called a feedback loop of injustice, where because they were reaching out for support from public services, their scores were higher. Because their scores were higher, they were investigated more often. Because they were investigated more often, more data was uh, in the system about them. Because there is more data about them in the system, their score was higher, and the loop sort of closes. Um, so um, they were really concerned with what are known as false positives. So the, this system that um, uh, pulls variables from that data warehouse and runs an algorithm to create a risk score, um, parents, as you might imagine, were really concerned that it would predict harm where no harm was actually occurring. 
But I also spent a whole day sitting in the call center with intake screeners in the system or the front line of the caseworkers in the system. They're the folks who get the calls from the county um, hotline or who get reports from mandated reporters and make this really difficult decision about which ones to, to screen in for full investigations and which ones to screen out. Keep the data but not investigate right now. And call screeners were worried about the same problem but from the opposite perspective. They were concerned about false negatives. Because the system has almost no data on professional middle class families, they were concerned that the system would not be able to recognize the kind of harm or predict the kind of harm that actually might be happening in professional middle class families. Um, so one of the things that's interesting about this system is the designers of the system will say that one of the reasons they built it um, is to identify and intervene in racial disproportionality in the system. In the United States, 47 of 50 states um, pull um, black, biracial, and Native American children out of their families and put them into foster care at rates that far exceed uh, their proportion in the population. So that's known as racial disproportionality. It's a problem in Allegheny County like it is everywhere else. So the designers of the system say, we don't know that this system necessarily will solve racial disproportionality, but be we believe with better data, we can identify discriminatory decision-making in the system and we can step in. Now what's really interesting is that the county's own data shows that intake screening, the point at which this tool is aimed, is not actually the place where racial disproportionality is entering the system. It actually enters at what's known as call referral, which is when people call on families to these hotlines or report them through mandated reporting processes. So in Allegheny County, black and biracial families are 350% more likely to be reported to child welfare services by the community. Once those cases get in the system, there is a little bit of disproportionality that's added at call screening. So call screeners screen in 69% of cases around black and biracial children and only 65% of cases around white children. But that's a 4% difference versus a 350% difference. And I think that's something that's really interesting around these systems and it, it behooves us to pay really close attention when designers of these tools talk about them as tools for increasing racial equity. I think we should be really cautious um, when um, folks start making those arguments. Because what I saw in Allegheny County was a very sophisticated tool, um, a very resource intensive and sophisticated tool aimed at the place where the problem wasn't happening. And at worst, it could actually remove some human discretion from the front line of that system. These intake call screeners, who are, by the way, the most racially diverse, the most working class, and the most female part of their workforce. Um, and uh, removing their discretion could very much create actually amplification of the kind of discrimination that's entering the system at call um, referral. So one of the questions I, I try to leave people with in the book is um, to say we shouldn't be asking discretion yes or no, we should be asking discretion who? Because I have this very smart um, political science friend named Joe Sauce, um, and he said discretion is like energy, it can never be created or destroyed, it's only ever moved. So in this case, they're actually moving the discretion from the front line of their workers and giving it to the economists and data scientists and computer programmers who are developing the system. 
that's it for Stick Together this week. You can catch up with the show at 3cr.org.au or where you get your favourite podcasts. Contact us at sticktogether at 3cr.org.au. I'm Annie McLaughlin. Join the Stick Together team next week for more workers' news. And remember, wherever you are, whatever you do, there is a union for you. Keep safe and stick together.